Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Last week, President Joe Biden's White House published a 73-page document produced by the Office of Science and Technology Policy titled Blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights, Making Automated Systems Work for the American People. The White House says, quote, Among the great challenges posed to democracy today is the use of technology, data, and automated systems in ways that threaten the rights of the American public. The blueprint, then, is, quote, A guide for society that protects all people from these threats, and uses technologies in ways that reinforce our highest values. The five values it lists are, one, people should be protected from unsafe or ineffective automated systems. Two, they should not face discrimination enabled by algorithmic systems based on their race, color, ethnicity, or sex. Three, they should be protected from abusive data practices and unchecked use of surveillance technologies. Four, they should be notified when an AI system is in use and understand how it makes decisions affecting them. And five, they should be able to opt out of AI system use and, where appropriate, have access to a person, including when it comes to AI used in sensitive areas such as criminal justice, employment, education, and health. To discuss the blueprint and the broader context into which it was introduced, I spoke to one expert who had a hand in writing it and one external observer who follows these issues closely. I'm Suresh Venkatasramanian. I'm a professor of computer science and data science and deputy director of the Data Science Initiative at Brown University. I'm Alex Engler. I'm a fellow at the Brookings Institution where I research algorithms and government, especially social policy, and I teach data science and public policy at Georgetown. Well, thank you both for joining me today. We're going to talk about this recently announced blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights making automated systems work for the American people. 73-page document published by President Biden's White House uh, earlier this month. Um, And Suresh, I want to start with you because you had a 15-month appointment as an advisor to the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, where a lot of your thinking and a lot of your work essentially went into what has become this blueprint. So can you give us a little bit of context uh, about your role and certainly about how this blueprint came together? Yeah, so it has been 15 months. I joined OSTP in May 2021 um, and left in August of this year. So this was, you know, one of the things that people had been thinking about at OSTP, and there was a whole team of us working on this from, you know, for quite a while. And um, I think the October 8th, 2021 op-ed that Deputy Director Alondra Nelson had put out at the time articulated the vision of what we wanted to do, right? Sort of lay out something that goes beyond just, you know, high level, very high level principles, but sort of couples it with sort of specific actionable guidelines, instructions, guardrails, blueprints for how to actually achieve the protections we wanted for people, you know, in the age of algorithms. So, you know, the op-ed, you know, which you can, uh, which I'm sure you've seen is sort of lays out the the plan and, and this is the result of that plan. And can you talk a little bit about that process? I understand it included listening sessions, meetings, um, various folks from civil society, from industry, et cetera, were brought into the discussion, uh, some of which were moderated by you. There was a lot of engagement. I think, and I will say, you know, that at least this OSTP from the very beginning has felt that 
broad and deep public engagement is very important. And so we we tried, you know, I, I think there's always more one can do, but we tried to model that degree of engagement, which means we had many one-on-one conversations. And I think one of the appendices lists out all the different one-on-one conversations we had with companies and other entities who are other stakeholders involved in this, including a, an amazing group of high school kids who are, who are thinking about some of these issues and, and doing activism work around it, which is amazing. So that's, so we, we had all these one-on-one engagements. We had convenings themed around specific topics on health, civil justice, criminal justice, technology, um, and so on, right? A number of six convenings we had, and they're all available for, for viewing on, on various uh, YouTube and other media platforms. We had uh, we put out an RFI specifically around biometrics, which was a particularly sort of interesting and tricky topic to think about. And we had listening sessions associated with that, as well as formal written responses to the RFI that, again, are publicly available and can be reviewed. Um, we commissioned an external report from the Science and Technology Policy Institute to sort of analyze that, and that report is also available. So so all of these things basically helped inform, guide, shape, you know, from the public side, what people were thinking and what people were keen to understand and do about AI regulation. And this was separate from a number of internal engagements within the U.S. government that we did with agencies literally across the board, uh, talking with folks who are who have been doing AI implementations, who've been developing guidelines and regulations in their own agencies um, at, at all levels. So that was the whole process. So as you imagine, that process takes some time. It took us, uh, you know, I know there was a lot of impatience, which I interpret as excitement, which I was happy about for to put this out. And it, it took time to bring it out. It took time to make sure that, you know, um, all the, you know, that everyone that you know, in the U.S. government is comfortable with what we were saying as well, that we were making sure that we understood the details and the technicalities that different agencies bring to this picture. It's a, it's a complicated picture, right? It's, you know, and I think Alex has talked about this as well. It's one thing to have a broad swath sort of set of guidelines, but if you want to make them specific and actionable, you really have to understand what's happening within each individual agency or sector, right? And that has been sort of a U.S. way of thinking about this. So, so that also took some time to engage and understand and understand people's perspectives, what their concerns were, what they wanted to emphasize, and then understand all the stuff they were doing, which the fact sheet that comes along with the Bill of Rights sort of talks about. So that's what this whole process was, and that's where we ended up on October 4th. I want to come back, uh, Alex, we'll, we'll get into you know, what we do and don't know about what federal agencies are doing with regard to AI at the moment, because I know that's something you've looked at pretty closely. Uh, but before we do that, let's talk about what the document says, and maybe at a high level, uh, kind of what the intent is here behind this Bill of Rights, and also, I think, what its scope is and what its scope is not. So I understand this is a document that's really you know, targeted at the federal government itself. And we'll get into why some, you know, find that to be problematic or a point of criticism. But what are the principles behind this thing? What was the the White House trying to do uh, by laying out this Bill of Rights? So first of all, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't agree with you necessarily that the target for the, the document was the federal government only. I think it was broader than that. But having said that, what are the goals, right? So our goal was to, was to articulate guardrails and protections for people living in a society that's you know increasingly powered by automated systems. And I deliberately say automated systems because the effects of these systems go beyond merely what can be construed today in October 2022 as AI, which could change by November 2022. So we wanted to sort of make sure we had something that was in some sense, I wouldn't say future proof, but definitely proof against the way in which technology can change its name and change and evolve over time. So we wanted to articulate protections, 
And it was very important to us to articulate protections and also couple that with actionable things that could be done to ensure those protections. So the entire, the reason why it's 73 pages and not five is because we spent a lot of time trying to lay out expectations, lay out a case for why these issues are important, what the concerns are, what can be done in terms of expectations and why this is in fact already happening in so many different places. That it's not something that's pie in the sky unrealistic. It's actually very grounded in things that are actually going on. But of course we, have, we need to do a lot more, but there are examples that we can draw on to build on to do more. So that's what so the document has, you know, the right, the principles themselves and all of this. So what are the principles? So they're actually really, you know, very simple to state, right? Technology should work <laughs> at the very basic level. They should just work as a claim. They should not discriminate. They should not collect data willy-nilly for no good reason. They should be accountable and not invisible. And where, where you know, in all cases, there sh should be, wherever reasonable, backup systems, human systems, because technologies fail and they will fail. And, and that's really, really much all there is to it. These are, you know, very natural things. And it, in some sense, it's surprising one has to say it, but we had to say it, that this is what we want. And then the rest of it is how and what we and what this actually means in great detail. I'll, I'll stop there for now. But that, that's basically what we want, and this is how we want to instantiate. I'd love to add a little, even zoom out and, and do an even little broader context because I think everything that Suresh just said is is true and was really necessary for sort of an important political reason. You know, the Trump administration spent enormous amount of time on artificial intelligence and algorithmic policy. They had two quite meaningful executive orders. They poured money into National Science Foundation funded AI institutes. Um, they built some and, and, and encouraged some new infrastructure and built a, a collaborative and sort of interagency collaborative called NAIR around uh, research funding. They even tried to use AI to address the COVID-19 pandemic in ways that I think were, were quite misguided and probably should have been focused on just like core data collection, right? But they, they put a big White House initiative on AI. And even across all of that, something they never did was really broadly contextualize civil liberties and harms, you know, and algorithmic harms and the response and responsibility of government in that space. And I think you know, I wrote at the time that that was overlooked and was important. And so while I think some people looked at the AI Bill of Rights and were a little exhausted by its principles focus, because there is kind of this exhaustion with AI principles and AI ethics in this moment. And, and that's warranted because we've seen all these ethics and we haven't seen as much action as we'd like. And I, I understand I sympathize with that exhaustion, but the government still needed to do this, right? We could have a thousand AI ethics statements. It is fundamentally different when the White House does it. And the fact that they did it so thoroughly and so, so carefully is really meaningful, even if we're bored of AI ethics statements. And I think that's you know important to recognize that this really is the first time that we've seen that in such a detailed and meaningful way. And there is other things that are valuable about this. We can talk more about the specifics, but I think that broad context is, is worth giving credit for. Yeah, thank you, Alex. That's a very important point. And I, I want to add one point to what Alex said, is that there are there is a frame of reference that I think comes through a lot of the Trump administration work that being, you know, as charitable as I can, is can be roughly framed as AI is awesome. We need to do more of it. Oh, by the way, we should probably make sure to not do a couple of bad things, but hey, AI, great. We do more AI. And I think, you know, 
there is nothing in principle in wrong with with talking about the benefits and and you know in fact you know there are lots of benefits that come from using technology in in appropriate ways but you have to have the guardrails and i think talking only on one side of the mouth and not actually recognizing the whole picture was i think part of the 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 thing that we felt most keenly when trying to talk about this like yes but <laughs> you have to have guardrails and and you know i think a lot of people also felt you know there was a lot of re- internal reaction initially oh this is a you know why are you being so negative you know or why are you dissing on tech right but i think the truth is you know all of us generally felt and i'm a computer scientist right so this is you know i i don't want to diss on my own people but this is an opportunity right the, putting these guardrails in place doesn't mean we don't want to use tech it's the same way we don't claim that safety belts make make cars worse they actually allow us to drive more and drive faster frankly in a safe way i think you know i don't want to belabor the analogy too much but a lot of what we're saying is look just put some safety belts and just put some checks on them just do the things that are reasonable to do <laughs> and then then let's see what happens and that's why as alex said we just had to come on it had to be said i want to zoom back out maybe one step further alex and look at the kind of international context uh for this ai bill of rights you've written about how the eu and the us appear to be coming into something that we might call alignment uh, on the approach to AI. Do you think that this document contributes to that alignment? Um, Is it getting us closer to a place where, uh, at least in the West, we appear to have some sort of, you know, agreement on how to regulate or uh, otherwise kind of consider the use of artificial intelligence in public? You know, I, I think broadly, the European Union is concerned sort of about the broad framing that Suresh just said that we're overly focused on techno solutionism and development and private sector expansion and less concerned about societal risks and uh, harm mitigation and specifically through regulation. And so I imagine this is somewhat um, alleviating right to that, to that problem that the EU sees this as a systemic prioritization of this and and a systemic approach. Um, It is still very different than the European approach. And so whether or not these things end up aligning in the long run is a very good question. Um, Most algorithmic protections that we're talking about here are in human services, not all of them, but a lot of things like hiring and uh, education and healthcare provisioning and financial services access. What's important about that in, in this circumstance is that there aren't that many international repercussions of those. A lot of those right now are, are somewhat localized. But as we see more and more um, platforms, as platforms expand in what they do, we can eventually assume that these will become more international issues. LinkedIn is a great example. LinkedIn has all sorts of algorithms that affect hiring. They operate in the US. They operate a very big company in Europe as well. And so the laws that affect hiring uh, or algorithms for job ads, for instance, right, would, would be a, sort of a, an international trade issue almost. And so I think if you look at sort of our history with the challenges of data flows, which we are still working out uh, because of sort of an EU and US misalignment in priorities and approach, and you expect that eventually when some of these high impact algorithms and social services are more in platforms and thus become more international issues, I think you can expect this to become a trade issue. And then that alignment really is going to be important. So some the, the fact that we're kind of working on the same issues is encouraging. Now, of course, the approach uh, is still quite different. 
Yeah, and I should say that, you know, LinkedIn is one good example, but even Harvey is another example as well, right? I was interviewed recently for a BBC documentary on hiring algorithms in the UK, and they talked about Harvey, which is a US company. And so some, some of these companies, you know, have products that apply across the board. And so now, and, we, and, and this is going to be an issue with those as well. Suresh, can you talk a little bit about what you learned in the kind of, I guess, sector by sector review of AI and how various agencies are employing AI and what are the kind of, I guess, different threat level or concern level that you might have in one area versus another? We've just mentioned, you know, algorithmic discrimination in hiring, for instance, but you also, of course, looked at law enforcement. Of course, there's applications of AI in literally every aspect of uh, everything from health to education. Are the, was there one that stood out to you as perhaps being an area where uh, it appears that the kind of general understanding of the role of artificial intelligence is well considered and perhaps one that where you think there's the most work to be done? So first of all, I think, you know, working with agencies is was illuminating, right? Just because of the level of the level of intricacy in the internal governance structures, the authorities, different agencies, different departments within different agencies have over certain parts of the pipeline, even, even in something like the hiring pipeline, right? The way in which the Department of Labor and the EEOC hand off between each other, they have different realms of responsibility and different scopes. These are all intricacies that we have to engage with. We can't ignore this in, in dealing with this. And so to your point of where I think both the role of AI and the concerns around are most well understood. I think hiring is definitely one of those places where, you know, the Department of Labor and uh, OFCCP, their office, uh, I forget the, the acronym, but uh, has put out the guidelines around this. EOC has put out guidelines around hiring practices. There's there's a lot of rich thinking going on about worker surveillance in within the Department of Labor. So there's a lot of understanding of what the concerns are and what needs to happen. And so there's there's a lot of active work going on there. So that's one example. I would say that another example, which is very well understood, but a lot more work needs to be done, is frankly in the law enforcement realm and risk assessments in the use of technology and investigative tools, right? It's not just facial recognition. There are lots of other tools that get used, for example, sophisticated AI-based systems for analyzing mixtures of DNA and trying to tease out individual DNA. The line between what was forensic science and what is AI is blurring rapidly. And the problem with a lot of the use of technology investigative components is that there isn't the same kind of governance that would happen if evidence had to be presented in court, for example, because a lot of this stuff happens before you even get to a courtroom. And so the, there's a lot of concerns, a lot of known concerns, and very little governance around this as well. So that's, I think, in my mind, that navigating the intricacies of law enforcement and, and how AI gets used there is still, well, still a work in progress. Alex, you wrote uh, in your piece for Lawfare about the kind of information gathering uh, aspect of this and how uh, different agencies have either produced information or produced less information, or in some cases, uh, maybe no information about what is available. Can you maybe speak to that a little bit? What do we know about the federal government, for instance, and how it employs AI? Oh, so you know, there's two sides to this. One is how the federal government is consolidating and bringing together its information about algorithms that it's using itself. But I'll come back to that in one second because I want to build off something that Suresh just said, which is which is really meaningful, which is that the agency's ability to gather information about the market also differs dramatically. So you have 
some agencies that have quite a lot of authority to go do information collections. Um, the Federal Trade Commission is a great example. They can go subpoena tons of data. Uh, I think this is actually technically an administrative subpoena, so it's sort of a lower barrier um, to go out and get this information. You don't necessarily need to go to a court. Um, and you can go ask people that you or organizations, companies that you have authority over to give uh, you data. And the FTC did this, for instance, for uh, companies like Venmo that do payments, right, electronic payments, and then they can review that data. But the EEOC, for instance, absolutely can't do that. And so, and in fact, the EEOC can't even target vendors. They can only target hirers themselves. And that's a real barrier for them. Suresh mentioned HireVue before. The EEOC can't actually in any way enforce hiring discrimination law over HireVue. They can only do it over companies that use HireVue. And so we have a bit of a mismatch in capacity in some of these issues. Uh, and, I, and I'm sort of very hopeful that a path going forward from the Bill of Rights will be identifying some of those challenges and maybe elevating them to might be change in executive order, might be a change in law that's necessary. The other half of this is government's use of algorithms. There is a sort of algorithmic creep going on, slow expansion of algorithms into more and more decisions and slightly higher stakes decisions. That's happening slower in the federal government than it is in the private sector, certainly, but it's still happening. And you would want to see a few uh, sets of rules and, and guidelines uh, in a few different areas. One being in procurement. What is the government's plan to, to you know set guidelines for what types of software under what circumstances getting procuring significant algorithm decisions, uh, decision-making systems, uh, when is that appropriate? And then on the sort of building uh, and developing side, um, not only standards for actually doing the process, but also documenting and making sure that we're aware of all those systems. This is where I do think there's sort of a significant shortfall of, of the AI Bill of Rights. There was an executive order from the late Trump administration that called for a broad registry of the current uses of AI in government. And this was supposed to be a first pass. It didn't need to be the absolute most rigorous thing ever, but it, ideally it should have given us and the public a clear sense of what agencies are using algorithms for. And while that technically did happen, it was really quite underwhelming. Um, and it it's uh, I think was a bit of a missed opportunity for, for some more collection and data collection around uh, how government is, is sort of becoming more algorithmatized. Suresh, I want to give you a chance to weigh in on that. No, I think that's true. I, I will uh, a minor point. I mean, while the EOC cannot, you know, as you said, go after HireVue, they can only sort of look at what companies doing the actual hiring are doing. This is where an interesting handoff comes in, right? So the the, the OFCCP, which is the Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs within, within Department of Labor, right? They can actually put out guidelines for any companies that gets federal contracts. So much like how we think of procurement as a vehicle to exert force and change on how companies conduct their business, this is also another vehicle that they can exert some control over what companies do when any companies involved in federal contract um, has to do has to sort of manage hiring practices in a certain way. And there are things that can be done there. So these are subtle things there where there are levers that can be deployed, but you have to be done in a very careful way because of all the constraints on this. But to, to Alex's point, I mean, I think this is, this is correct. I mean, the, it took a long time to get information from agencies on what they were doing regarding AI. And secondly, what they were doing regarding responsible AI, right? Because one of the uh, the Trump EO sort of asked agencies to talk about what they were doing to make sure that their systems were compliance with privacy, civil liberties, and other kind of transparency accountability guidelines. And even that sort of, that information has been slow to sort of come out. 
A part of it, I think, is because a lot of these systems get embedded at very low levels across an agency, especially for the big ones. It's often hard to know, you know, even within their own organization, whether they're, whether they're using AI or not, which is what the Trump EO is about. And that's why often I have a problem with sort of narrowing things to AI because it's easy to define it or not define it depending on how you want to reveal or not reveal what you're doing. <laughs> You know, logistic regression could be AI if you want to sell it. It could be not AI if you don't want to talk about it. And so that that that, that kind of thing is, is always a problem with when you start saying, well, we're using AI in your systems. It is something that, you know, we spend some time trying to understand. The fact sheet, I think, is a reflection of those attempts to sort of reveal what's going on uh, inside agencies and what they're doing about their use of algorithms. So I, I do agree that it's been slow coming. I, I don't know. Alex, you mentioned this is a failure of the Bill of Rights. I think it's it's related to it, but I think it's I think it's something that I will say that is ongoing as a result of developing the Bill of Rights. There is ongoing work now to use this to shape and understand what's happening within the agencies. Alex, I'll just you know reference a couple of the agencies that you called out for their uh, prior responses, having been sort of functionally useless. You say the EPA, for instance, uh, the Department of Energy which apparently said it has uh, no information uh, about its use of artificial intelligence in response to that that earlier query. Are there agencies that you feel have done a very good job of staying on top of this and ones that are, you know, maybe shining light as a best practice or or really the ones that the, the rest of the government ought to look at and say, we should do it like that? Point of clarification, there's actually... And, and Suresh and I should apologize for being so in the weeds on this that we didn't clearly delineate. I, I, I never apologize for being in the weeds. I'm sorry. I don't. <laughs> Fair. We, we Fair. So there, there are, in fact, two Trump era executive orders yeah. um, that were a little, in my opinion, under executed on or or I think in Suresh's totally reasonable framing, not fully executed on yet or that there are projects that are still ongoing, which, you know, I also think is encouraging. Right. This. This issue isn't going anywhere as long as there is considered progress. I think that's a reasonable expectation. But the first is about whether or not agencies document their own use of AI, which they did very, very sparsely, right? So they they sort of submitted, here's what we're using AI for with these very brief descriptions, but it was missing, you know, did you build it or an outside contractor build it? What was the outcome variable? Who do I contact if I think this is wrong? What are the risks? You know, very, very little information like that. The other, which we were just referencing a second ago, Justin, was about the regulatory authority of what types of AI systems are emerging that these agencies have authority over. And really only health and human services took that seriously. They were really the only agency that went through the process of saying, what do we see in the market? And what do we see out in the world of health science and research and products that is really using algorithms in a way that we have our eye on under our existing regulatory authority. And that ended up being really useful. They ended up mentioning 12 different legal statutes, um, several information collections, like how uh, algorithms are changing, genomic sequencing, some you know emerging AI use cases, like in medical imagery. And by doing that, you got a holistic sense of what the agency was saying. Here's how algorithms are changing our regulatory authority. Again, like Suresh mentioned, there's still time. This is still a thing that agencies could do. But... Unfortunately, I think just sort of because of the timing and maybe because it was a Trump executive order, agencies didn't feel that motivated to do it. And then you had all these new, you know, the Biden transition comes in. So it's different people and they have their own problems and priorities. So, I, you know, I, I don't want to 
presented as a failure is strong, right? But I think it was something that needs more work going forward well, and you need to convince the agencies to to do it somehow. I think it's fair to say it's a failure. It's a failure. <laughs> there, was a, there was a schedule and they didn't, they didn't deliver on schedule. And I think it's fair to say that it was a failure. And I think more pressure to produce the the required thing is is perfectly legitimate and should be. I think we, we do want to see the results of what is you know required by the EO. I will say one interesting thing I think comes up that I'll talk about is that it is often fiendishly difficult to get the right answers to these questions unless you know which questions to ask. Right? I think going to Alex's point, right? If you ask some basic questions you'll get basic answers and it's very easy to avoid giving the answers that are needed. So one report that came out uh, last year, I think, was this report by the GAO on the on, on AI sort of governance. It was a very good report for many reasons, but also because it had a lot of very specific questions that anyone implementing an AI system needs to ask about the system they're using, whether it's governance, whether it's testing, whether it's validation. And it turns out, you know, just the skill of knowing which questions to ask is a skill. And if you don't ask the right questions, you will not get the answers you're looking for. And, I, and you know, I, I, I suspect, well, I, I, more than I suspect that some of the reasons why the answers are underwhelming is also because the questions were not framed in a way that would force the right kinds of answers. Just to that point, I mean, something that Alex kind of brought up made me think about this, but is this slightly a language thing? Um, are people able to kind of I don't know, evade the query around artificial intelligence um, or machine learning by just categorizing a system, not using those terms, or uh, perhaps, you know, something that you might regard as a machine learning system that should be swept up into consideration of AI implementation doesn't go in there somehow. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Maybe I'll add a little color to this. I agree with The definition challenge is ongoing, and one of the little tricks of the AI Bill of Rights is that it doesn't need to define AI. It basically says, hey, uh, agencies with significant regulatory authority over important human decisions, like we mentioned, hiring, healthcare, and employee surveillance, all those, you need to figure out what's important and what's being automated in your space that kind of matters, and we don't care what methods are being used, Right. And so by passing this off to the sectoral and application-specific regulators, you skip the step where you need to broadly define AI in a way that's sort of universally useful. And the European Union is struggling with that mightily. They have an EU AI Act that is enormously long and still does not have a final definition of AI, despite the fact that they are you know, more than a year and change into the discussion and probably within a few months of passage or three, three or four months of passage, maybe. And so that's a, it's a real challenge to define it concretely. You know, I think if you're trying to skirt under the definition, you can say, oh, well, clearly people who mean AI mean neural networks, right? They mean things with transformers and convolution. And if you don't have that, they, they can't mean a decision tree. A decision tree is just an if else, you know, a bunch of if else statements who, who that's not important. But actually, a lot of the really important models here, especially in finance, especially in areas like like a, a property appraisal or a mortgage approval or car loan approval, a lot of these are not the absolute most cutting edge things we think of when we think of AI. They're not the beautiful image generation of Dolly or the language you know, mimicking GPT-3. They can be much, much simpler machine learning models that might not feel like AI to some people, but are enormously consequential. 
if you don't mind me for a second going on a little soapbox about this, I really want to thank Alex for bringing this up because this was a key point for us. I'll say it here. I think the EU made a big mistake trying to define AI and they're going to, they're going to get themselves in knots they cannot untangle themselves from. And I'll say this because when we did our RFI on biometrics, the same issue came up. We got a lot of pushback because we sort of looked at biometrics broadly based on the impact they were having. And there was a lot of people very upset. Like we have a definition of biometrics. You have not used our definition. You are, this is not legitimate. You're not, you shouldn't be doing this, blah, blah, blah. The truth is that all these definitions get contested and legislated and argued over because the stakeholders have a stake in defining them the way they do. Now, when it comes to AI, let me sort of put my computer scientist hat on again, right? And in fact, I did given a presentation on this inside the US government a while ago. There was a time when calling something AI was a bad, bad thing. No one wanted to be called doing AI. The reason you have fields like computer vision, machine learning, NLP, natural language processing, are because these used to be AI and people said, no, 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 we're not AI, we're doing computer vision. We're not AI, we're doing machine learning. It might be weird to think of that now, right? But there was a time, and it just goes to show that I think if you ask academics, there will, there'll be a general agreement on what the academic field of AI is about. And I think there's a more or less consensus on that front. But when it comes to what AI is being considered in the popular space, it varies widely and wildly. <laughs> based on who's asking and who's telling. And so we were very clear from our front, we did not want to get into that game. And our view was, look, as Alex said, the point is impact. The point is who's being affected and who's hurting. That's the goal. That's what the government should care about. The government shouldn't be in the business of trying to define AI, but the government can legitimately ask who's hurting, whose rights are being affected, whose opportunities are being affected, whose access is being affected. That's a test. And so what we came up with was this kind of, you know, you can think of it like a two-part test, right? There's broad automation, which applies across the board, but not all of it is in scope unless there's a particular kind of impact on rights, opportunities, and access. So it's, it's, it's not the technology that defines whether it's in scope. It's the technology in the context looking at the impact. And that sort of two-part thing causes a lot of confusion for people who are used to thinking, okay, well, give me a, a list of tech that is bad and a list of tech that is good. But that is not the way to do it because it also plays into the hands of people saying, well, all tech is not bad. You're, you don't know what you're talking about. Some of this tech is good. And we're like, yeah, we're not getting to that. The impact is the point. Well, I appreciate that. And uh, Alex knows uh, my interest and the interest of many others in, of course, uh, language in how language in particular terms and tech policy can sometimes take on a life of their own, um, even if there is ambiguity. want to put to you this. When this Bill of Rights came out, um, I guess it's now been a week ago, not all the coverage was particularly positive. I mean, I, you know, Wired's Carrie uh, Johnson uh, faulted it for being a blueprint aimed at the federal government, but pointed out it's non-binding, that um, it leaves the large tech companies out of it. You had Protocols, Kate Kay, um, who came with the headline, White House AI Bill of Rights lacks specific recommendations for AI rules. Um, were you surprised at all about the uh, response to by some in the tech press? And are there particular criticisms that you found to be uh, valuable or warrant, warranted um, in terms of the public consumption of this and ones that perhaps you took issue with? So I think Alex pointed this out in his article, right? This is a white paper 
a document, a blueprint from OSTP. We don't make laws. We don't make regulations. We're not, in fact, we have strict rules on how we even could talk to regulators. We have to have lawyers present the whole time because we can't just go and talk to the FTC. There are limits on what OSTP can do. And this document was never meant to be uh, a set of regulations or a set of laws. That's, that's for Congress to do or for the regulatory agencies to do. What this was always meant to be was what it was, a blueprint, a vision, an articulation of vision, a set of values laid out. As Alex said, the first time it's been articulated in any form in the U.S. government. I think it's perfectly reasonable for people to say, you know, this is not enough. I think we would say the same thing too. This is a start. This is not the end. This is the start of a long process. But I think what we've tried, what we try to do in the technical companion, in the section of, you know, practices is to point out all the different levers and mechanisms that already exist in small ways to try and push these things forward. It's not, I think it's more satisfying to say, here is a law, the law does everything we're done, like the AI Act. For many reasons that, you know, if we had to shoot for that process, this might never have happened. Our view was it's better to put this out, let a thousand sort of ideas bloom and see how this plays out. And this is a start. And so that, so I, I don't blame anyone for pointing out that this is not binding and does not have regular, uh, has sort of force of law. They're absolutely correct. But I think that also is a limiting view of what this can be. Yeah, if I could just add a, a quick, quick couple of thoughts. Broadly, you know, I think the AI Bill of Rights is really a, re- a responsible and reasoned path forward. There's, I talk in my article a lot about why you want a sectoral approach led by regulating bodies, right? They're, they're working with stakeholders. I talk about housing and urban development, working with the stakeholders who are asking for a review of property of appraisal um, and, and why it's important that they are working on tasks that they're motivated to, to work on. And also that because you don't have this top-down sort of vague definitions and rules, you're also taking the algorithmic harms in the much broader context of the problem. And so, you know, the, the appraisal this property appraisal project is not just about algorithms, so that is a significant part of it. And they they did they are saying there's going to propose regulations on automated uh, property appraisal, um, but it's also about the professional appraisals, the appraisers themselves, the people, right? So it, for instance, also says we have to look at the 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 pipeline and the licensure of property appraiser appraisal individuals, right? The professionals, and I that's just the kind of thing that you really need to really move anything in these sort of big problems that that involve both technology and normal human processes. Every single time I've looked at a serious algorithmic harm, that has been the case. It has been a mix of an algorithmic process and people, and you need to address both. And so I do think, again, that broadly this is taking the right approach. And that if you look at the list of agency actions, it's pretty good. There are some notable gaps. That's the downside of going with an agency, you know, application by application specific approach. I think it, I mentioned that it's missing, I think, educational access to higher ed. I, I think uh, insurance, actually, it's not clear that there's an approach to looking at things like uh, life insurance offerings or car insurance offerings, which are significantly algorithmic. Um, and then the law enforcement one, I mean, is, as we've mentioned briefly, is an enormous and, and somewhat disconcerting gap because you have to be worried about different incentives across um, law enforcement agencies that may necessarily don't want to do this and don't want to engage with the public on some of these issues. So that's my defense of it. I will say it was probably a communications error to call this an AI Bill of Rights and then have it result in a large non-binding advisory document. Um, I do I do think that was maybe necessarily biting off a little more than a CP could shoot. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure people working on this maybe noted that mismatch. But I, you know, I understand why some of the coverage maybe uh, was expecting more, even though there are real 
limits that Suresh mentioned and what was possible. Uh, and that might be tied to the to what this was called. And, you know, listen, the government doesn't have regulatory authority over when we think about big tech, right? It doesn't have authority over search engines and online platforms and giant recommender systems. So if you're expecting something there, I don't know what to tell you, like there's nothing to happen, right? That's that's law, that's look to privacy legislation, that's, you know, look to the Algorithm Accountability Act or Independent Researcher Access or all these other interventions we talk about. We, you know, the White House can't do anything about those other than advocate for change in, on the Hill. So we, we may have had one or two discussions about the title, maybe one, maybe two, I don't know, a few. <laughs> I, I want to add one point just to, uh, to, to use the term that Googlers all know and maybe others in techno, right? We did dog food this a little bit. In other words, we when we were, when, when this was being drafted, you know, it wasn't like this was being drafted by OSTP and everyone went quiet. Agencies were talking to OSTP constantly throughout this process. And so often, you know, this was we would test drive sort of ideas from this with an agency with what they were thinking of and how they're doing to see whether what was being said in here made sense. So there was a bit of dog fooding that was going on to use the Google term, right? While this document was being developed as well. So to that end, to Alex's point, right? You know, this is not a claim that this will, of course, work in every sector, but there's at least there was some initial checks. Okay this kind of communication, this kind of a guidance and advice could be helpful to an agency coming to us for guidance on how to do the sector-specific sort of work. I don't want to end on a, a negative note necessarily, um, but I do want to uh, maybe just pick up on something you were saying about you know this Bill of Rights and kind of putting it in the broader context of you know, some of the Biden administration's announcements over the last couple of months. Of course, there were these six principles for tech policy reform that the administration put forward uh, recently as well. And, you know, if you look at those principles, you look at this Bill of Rights, clearly there's a lot here that does require Congress to take up this set of problems uh, that does require statutory regulatory reform. I suppose you all are similarly frustrated, as I might sound, uh, about the kind of inability of the American system of government to produce those types of reforms. But I don't know, what are we left with here? good ideas, a blueprint, a way forward. One might call those best laid plans, right? What do you think it would take for us to get over the hump to move forward in a more substantial way with all the bits of government towing in the right direction? I will say what we're left with is this. We're left with, you know, and I will say this for the first time, an articulation of, you know, the civil rights and civil liberties and rights implications of AI and automation in general, and what we should be thinking about and what is important right? These are fundamentally an expression of values. These are things we think are important and they should be important. Where we go from here, this was always, you know, intended as a start. I would, you know, in the sort of truly true democratic sense, I would say it is, it is up to all of us, frankly, and me as a, as in my current role as an academic and anyone else to sort of lift up these principles and see where we can start trying to put them out there and to get you know, our, our colleagues in civil society to advocate for them, to get our, our friends and state legislators to sort of roll them into the rules they're beginning to bring out. I think that's what has to happen next. And no, it's, it, you know, it, if it happens in Congress, the, you know, the algorithmic accountability act, something that's great too, but I don't think we should wait for that to happen. There's no point waiting for one big thing to happen. We should just keep using this as a blueprint for, for putting out voluntary guidelines, you know, regulatory guidance, you know, guidance at the state level, and then see where it goes. That's how we're going to make change bit by bit. I don't think there's one single silver bullet that's going to work. Yeah, I have, I have sort of two takes that I just kind of hold in my head at the same time. One is that the 
the type of thing we're seeing through the AI Bill of Rights absolutely needs to happen. We need to take these problems seriously. We need to get regulators to adapt longstanding areas of government regulation to the emerging role of algorithms and technology companies, right? And, and that's really more what the AI Bill of Rights is, is, at least seems to me to be about, right? These areas where government has historically had a role in hiring and education, healthcare, financial services access, recently surveillance. You know, there's a rule coming out, a new proposed rule around the Department of Labor and uh, from the Department of Labor about how who qualifies uh, as an employee versus a contractor. And that matters tremendously for everyone who's working under an app or Instacart or any of these algorithmically managed um, uh, work environments, right? And that type of adaptation is enormously staggeringly important for civil rights and how our our country functions and the role of government in, in guaranteeing those rights. And I honestly think those things get a lot less attention than some of the new technology issues which are important and are much more likely to require congressional um, action and are in that kind of the second category in my head. And this is lots of um, internet governance and social media issues. It could be disinformation or hate speech, uh, secure communications and child pornography. It could be surveillance and data privacy. It's absolutely true at the same time that while this first category of things needs to happen and can kind of happen through a lot of it can happen through a more incremental agency led approach, though, again, there are limitations and flaws there. Um, But then also for a lot of these new issues, which I think just eat up a lot of the press oxygen in in the room, um, we probably do need legislation. And, you know, the data protection and American Data Protection and Privacy Act could pass. Right. It's not not foregone conclusion that it's not going to, which would be a a welcome and a a big change if it does um, pass before the end of the year. So there is sort of some hope and and some uh, chance for for progress on some of that other category of of issues, but it's worth thinking about them uh, separately. I should say the other part of my portfolio when I wasn't working on this was dealing with misinformation. And that's a way harder problem. (laughs) Much harder, as I would say. And there's little to build on, right? You, we don't have a misinformation department, or a, you know, it's, you have to, and the government's not necessarily well set up to deal with these like or things sure, overlap I mean, so explicitly case. with speech, right? And so, yeah. I, I don't want to diminish those problems, but I think if you focused on that and like the, these are also the problems more often associated with like big tech using air quotes. Um, you know, you might be disappointed by this, but everything we saw in the air battle bread is still in, incredibly important and also more in line with the traditional role of government too. And I hear that uh, setting up a misinformation department might be a controversial notion. I think. Um, <laughs> but putting that to to aside, I, I just want to ask you, uh, Suresh, about uh, what you'll do now. You you've had this experience in the White House, and you know now back into academia. Um, how will your research agenda be changed, perhaps, by your experience? Um, and what's next for you? Oh, it's changed completely. I mean, I'm, I'm so well. The thing I'm doing at Brown now, and that was, you know, going to do when I moved to Brown last year, is set up a new center for tech responsibility. Uh, this is uh, sort of a has become has always been something I've wanted to do, but has become even more important after I've seen over the past 15 months the ways in which technology gets developed and then translated and then moved into policy and, and communicated to policy circles. I think we need to build better tech. As a computer scientist, I feel like we are stuck in frames of reference where the questions we ask and the problems we solve are still the same old, same old. But we can do better than that. We can just 
ask questions a different way and just expand our vision for how we do computer science. We need to educate our students to be able to think through those the broader societal issues and ask those questions themselves because it's not just me or a bunch of professors. It's a whole army of students going out in the world and being that change. And we need to find better ways to communicate the challenges of tech and policy. I've always said that you know, people think of technologists on one side and policymakers on the other side. You need people who can speak tech and understand its connections to policy because tech is changing the world and technology is changing the world in ways in which, frankly, our policy apparatus and our legal apparatus is not equipped to deal with. And we need ways to translate that. So these are things I'm going to be doing at the center. And that's my mission now, just seeing what I've seen so far. I feel like, you know, making the AI Bill of Rights a reality is is really what I want to do. Well, I know uh, Alex is is one of those people who tries to see you know those connections. I, I do my best as well in my teaching uh, and writing too, to the extent that I can. And so I suppose uh, we'll have to come back together at some point and talk about whether we're having any success. But I thank the both of you for joining me today. Anytime, thank thanks, Justin. I'll just extend my thanks to Suresh and everyone at OSTP who did all this work. They deserve uh, deserve credit for for how much they did accomplish. Thanks. There's a lot of people doing a lot of hard work. and <laughs> People are still there. I left, but they're still there doing the work. So. <laughs> Thank you both. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my guests, Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones, and thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.